Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Happy Canada Day weekend. So um, we're going to get started today, and I need the help of all the kids who are here. So if I could get all the kids who are here who are brave enough come, to come down to the front. There's three who are already in the front right here. But if, you, uh, if you're this tall or shorter, and you want to be involved, come on down to the front right now, if you would. Have a seat right here, if you would. Well, you're, you're tall enough. You're, yeah. You're almost too tall, Jacqueline, but if you want, you can still be part of it. Come on down. Anybody? Any takers? Owen, come on. Yeah, that's it. Excellent. Excellent. Anybody else? That's everybody? Okay, good. Good, good, good. Oh, here's a couple more coming. We'll wait. We're not being impatient or anything. There we go. They're coming out of the woodworks. There's Keenan. Hey, everybody. Good to see you. So thank you so much for coming today and, and for joining us up here. It's great to have you. Can you give these guys just a welcome? Let them know how much we love them. Because we do. We do. All right. How many of you, how many of you know who you are? Are you sure? You seem uncertain. Who are you? See, I told you, you were uncertain. No, I'll give you another chance. Who are you? A boy. Okay, I was thinking more like a name, but that's okay. Yanis. Oh, Yanis. Good. Excellent. Okay, good. And um, how many of you know where you came from? This could be a little dicey, but... <laughs> how, many of you know, how many of you know where you came from? Where did you come from? Travis, you want to try that one? No. Anybody? Okay, Trenton, you're brave. London. 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 Okay, that's fair. That's fair. A place. He came from a place. Anybody else? So how do you know, how do you know who you are and where you came from? How do you know that? Owen, that's a tough one. You want to try that? No? Okay. Jacqueline, how do you know who you are and where you came from? They listen to your parents. Sure, your parents tell you, right? Sure, they told you. They've told you your story. They've told you. So how do you know you can believe your parents? Is there anybody else that you can ask besides your parents if what your parents are saying is true? God. God, sure, yeah. Anybody else? What about your parents' parents? Your grandparents, right? They'll tell you the truth of, as to whether or not your parents are telling you the truth or not, right? Sure they will. And there's uncles and aunts. So we call grandparents, uncles and aunts, we call them what? Relatives or our? Our family. Yeah, our family. That's right. Okay. We've been spending the last part of this year, like 10 months this year, talking about our identity, who we are as God's people. And today we're going to be kind of wrapping that up and giving a kind of a, a last uh, thought on that, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, and I wanted you to give me some help. So first of all, i got to turn around. i got to show you guys. I don't know if you can see this or not, but you got to take a good look at me. Okay, that's all you get. So you guys get to look longer. I am wearing two things today, two things today that talk about who I am and where I came from. Can you identify one of them? What do you think one of them is? Jacqueline? 
what is that thing? The cross. Okay, so there's a cross. I'm wearing a cross pin, right? So that's, we'll talk about that. What else? What else am I wearing that might give a suggestion of who I am or where I came from? Nope. Everybody, everybody has a microphone. What else? Now, see, you guys, it's not fair because you guys don't see me every Sunday, so you don't necessarily recognize. Oh, okay, what's okay. different? The bow tie that you're wearing? The tie, yes, that's right. And it's a very special tie, Trenton. It's, it looks like Christmas colors, doesn't it? It's called a tartan. And you know what this is? This tie is actually the pattern that belongs to my family, the Armstrongs. I come from the Armstrong family, and I am an Armstrong. And Armstrongs, because of our heritage, we have a, 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 what's called a tartan. And so we have a, a, a cloth pattern that identifies us as Armstrongs. And it's different from other clans and other families uh, that have this tradition. So the idea behind these, this pattern was originally that, that um, different parts of, of the country had different weaves that identified where those places were from. And then families adopted it, and eventually families started having tartans. So this, this tie says to anyone who recognizes it that I'm an Armstrong. I don't even have to say anything, right? It just says that I am an Armstrong. And because I am an Armstrong, I belong to the family of Armstrong, and I am related to all the other Armstrongs that there are, including the Petke's grandchildren. Because their daughter married an Armstrong, right? So this tells everybody that I am part of that family. And so it gives me a sense of who I am, right? Now, what about the cross? What does the cross say? What does the cross say about who I am? That you are a Christian. That I'm a Christian, yeah. That's right. So I'm wearing the cross because it identifies me as a, as a follower of Jesus, right? And so I, I choose to, to wear that as a way of reminding myself and saying to myself that I'm a follower of Jesus. So when people see that, they should know, right, that I'm a follower of Jesus. And what does that mean? Does that mean that I'm a good person? Yes. For the most part. That's right. Yeah, you're right. Okay? So these are two things that tell me who I am. And that's what we're talking about today. We're looking at a particular letter in the Bible called the letter to the church in Ephesus or Ephesians. And it tells us all about who we are and what we're supposed to be like because of that. So thank you very much for your help. Give them a round of applause, everybody. You can go back to your seats. Thanks for all your help. That was awesome. Is this on? Here we go. Good. All right, so as I said, we are now wrapping up. This is our last message on this theme that we've had for our entire year of what's in a name. And uh, I want to spend a bit of time wrapping it up, and then I want to talk a little bit about what I think are some of the most important lessons that we can take from it. So first of all, it's your turn to participate a little bit. What have you learned? What have we learned from our journey through Ephesians? And Ephesians really, as we said, it's, it's a blueprint for the church. It gives us um, a sense of who we are as the people of God and then what that means, what, that, what we're supposed to look like. So what have you learned? What have you picked up this year from the letter of Ephesians about who we are? Go ahead and shout it out. The righteousness of Christ. We're special to God. We're special to God. 
We have to love each other and love God, okay? We're saved through faith. We're sealed, okay? One faith, one hope, one God. Anything else? The armor of God protects us, okay. What about what we, if we are the people of God, what are we supposed to be like? What are we supposed to do because of who we are? What about that? What did you learn about that? Sorry? Ambassadors of Christ, okay. Love one another, sure. Sure, strive to be like Jesus, absolutely. Anything else? Sorry? New attitude. attitude. Yeah, the new self. Yeah. I I missed that. Talk to God and listen to God. All right, so here's, let's fill in the blanks. If we were to do a summary of what we've talked about this year through our letter of Ephesians, it would look like this. And these are the major themes of the letter that spell out who we are as the people of God and what that means for us in terms of how we are then called to live. Now, I could spend a lot of time unpacking this, but that's what we've done for the last 10 months. But I want to draw it to your attention because these themes, these bullet points are loaded with meaning. We've taken you know, whole mornings or even several weeks to unpack some of these. And I want you to take a look at them because they're, they're so powerful and they're so meaningful and they are the things that I would hope that we would have, have gleaned over the course of the year. Our identity is so important. One of the things we talked about is, is our response to Jesus flows out of our identity. We need to know who we are in him. And here's what he says. He says, we are called, chosen, and adopted. We started by talking about that, that God calls us. He chooses us, and he adopts us into his own family. This is, I think, I think my favorite, that we are made alive in Christ, we are raised with Christ, and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, even now. That because we are in Christ, we have already conquered death. That we have a new life given to us. And that we have authority given to us in heaven, from heaven, to act on God's behalf in the world today. I mean, that's mind-blowing, if we really honestly believe that. But that's what Paul says. And that we are citizens, members, and vital parts together of God's household, which is a holy dwelling place for God's Spirit. The temple of the Holy Spirit on earth today is you and I, the church. We are the people of God, and we are the embodiment of His presence in the world today. He dwells among us. We are His hands, His feet. And all of this together, we are this together uh, in the church. And as we know, Paul breaks into doxology and prays. He's so moved by these things that we have these wonderful prayers of praise in Ephesians chapter 3. And then beginning in chapter 4, he shifts gears and says, if this is who you are, how then should you live? And he said that we are to live lives worthy of that calling. Live into it, walk into it, walk it out. We don't earn this identity, it's given to us. But then we are called to live it out. We are called to embrace it. We're called to walk it out in everyday circumstances. We are to be imitators of God, living lives of love like Jesus. That he is our model. That he is the one that we follow. He is the one that we are learning from. And we're constantly taking 
our direction from Him. That we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. That in all of our relationships, we should love others and, and give ourselves away for others, just like Jesus did. And that we're to be strong in the Lord by putting on the armor of God. And I love both Jeff's and Elizabeth's message on this. Jeff talking about how, you know, when we wear the armor of God, we're dressed in the uniform of Jesus. That Jesus wore the armor. And that the armor of God identifies us, just like this tie identifies me as an Armstrong. When you and I are cloaked in the armor of God, it identifies us in the heavenly realms, and certainly we would hope in the earthly realms, as followers of Jesus. And it equips us for the warfare which we are engaged in. Because we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers in high places. And as we were reminded our, our war, our battle is not against human beings. There are no people that we are set out against. What we are opposing and what we are rolling back and what we are defeating are the lies of the enemy that has enslaved humanity. But make no mistake, those are powerful. And he is powerful. And our primary weapon is prayer. That's what the letter of Ephesians unpacks. And that is a blueprint for the church. For any church, every church. But what I'd like to do is take a little bit of time and kind of change gears a little bit. If that's what we've been learning, now I want to take a sneak peek behind the scenes and look at what made the church at Ephesus such a powerhouse. Such a powerhouse. And we're going to go to Acts chapter 19 and look at some verses in Acts chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can look there. This is where Paul first arrives in Ephesus and founds the church there. Ephesus truly was a powerhouse. It was the place where Paul eventually would launch several of his missions. It became a center for his work in Asia. Later on, it's, as tradition has it, it became the place where John, the apostle, the last living apostle, he and Mary, he'd been charged with looking after the mother of Jesus, settled in Ephesus. And according to tradition, Mary is buried there. It was the church that was home to the Apostle John in the latter part of the first century and to Jesus' mother, Mary. It hosted one of the seven great ecumenical councils in 431 AD. Ephesus was one of the leading church communities in the empire. But here's how it got started in Acts chapter 19. Um, and we'll read verses 1 through 12. And take a look at this. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, What baptism have you received? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. Interesting that there were 12 of them. It's an interesting number. But here we have a group of individuals in this city where Paul first comes into contact with them, 12 in all, and as he interacts with them, they have the, they have the baptism of John. They've heard of Jesus, and they have a baptism of repentance, but they have no knowledge of the Holy Spirit. So they understand about right and wrong. 
They understand about following rules and keeping rules. They understand about sin and commandments. They understand about judgment and righteousness. And they've heard of Jesus. And they've heard that they should look to Jesus. This is the baptism of John. But they knew nothing about the new life empowered by the Holy Spirit that Jesus brings. They only had half of the equation. They didn't have the other half. They didn't have the half that that said, you know, Jesus came and he said, I am going to leave you the Holy Spirit. He's going to guide you into all truth. And you're going to do even greater things than me because this mission that I'm on, you're going to be a part of it. And you're going to do great things in my name in the power of the Holy Spirit. They had none of that at the beginning. And Paul had to give that to them. So that's the first thing that we notice was rooted in the church in Ephesus. Let's keep reading. Paul entered the synagogues and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. His message was the kingdom of God, the fulsome gospel of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. Not just a gospel or a message about personal salvation, Not just a message that said, you're a sinner and you need to be saved and Jesus died for your sins and so you need to come to Jesus so you can be forgiven so you can go to heaven. That's not the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom of God is a gospel that says that God is reconciling all things to himself in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we're invited to join it. We're invited to become part of it. How do we become part of it? Through Jesus, absolutely. But the gospel is so much more than an individual story or an individual savior. We're doing so much more than saving souls. We are restoring God's creation to himself in Jesus. And Paul says in Corinthians, this message of reconciliation is what we carry to the world. This is our gospel the fulsome, whole gospel of the kingdom of God. But some of them, in verse 9, some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Paul's influence, Paul's leadership in in the church in Ephesus for two years just completely set the course. God worked so powerfully through him, and God was doing amazing things through him as this church was getting rooted and grounded, and and it grew, and and it flourished. This is a blueprint for the church. And I want to ask us to reflect for a moment. We've been on a journey at Forestbrook for the last several years. We've been very transparent, very open about it, trying to share it as we've gone along, learning as we go. But if we go back even four or five years ago when we began to have this sense and share with our church that we were made for more, that there was so much more that we felt God was calling us to than we had received or that we had embraced. And we began to explore and we began to pray and we began to learn and we began to grow. 
I want, if you've been here for the last four or five years, I invite you to take a moment to think back. Think back to some of the major themes and some of the major topics that we've learned. Do you remember Spirit-powered church? Do you remember here as it is in heaven? Do you remember the time that we have been spending looking at at these themes that God has been showing us? Do you have a sense of where we've come from and do you have a sense of where God is taking us as a church? I want to invite you to take a few moments to think about that. Where have you seen the Holy Spirit at work in this fellowship? I'll come back in a few minutes and we'll talk a bit more about that. Acts, there we go. There's one more thing from this story in Acts, one more lesson that we can draw from the founding of this church in Ephesus that I would like us to, to look at. It's in verses 13 through 20. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Sorry, I lost my place there. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord, Jesus, was held in high regard. Many of those who came to believe confessed and disclosed their deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Here we see a formula for the expansive growth of the church. We see the, the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit at work. The Holy Spirit doing incredible things, whether that's through, through handkerchiefs from Paul going and healing people that, that amazed people, or whether it's through the setting of free of people who are tormented by demons and, and evil spirits. The power of the Holy Spirit but on top of that was the authentic response of the believers. The authentic response of believers. And this combination led to the advancement of the word of God in power. What is it we want? What is it we desire for Forest Brook and for God's church everywhere? It is to see the church growing in power it is to see the kingdom of God advancing in power. It is to see people being freed and realizing the freedom they have in Christ from the torment that they endure. It is to see people being healed of illnesses and diseases because Jesus heals. It is to see people coming to know that they have a God who loves them so much. It is to see the transformation, not just of individuals, but of institutions, of organizations of the entire world. To see families change and marriages saved and, and 
uh, reconciliation happening everywhere and all over the place, and to see that happening more and more in and through the church. That is what we desire. We desire for the good things that God has given to us and shared us, shared with us to be given and shared to all the world. As much as we can reach, as many people as we can impact, as many people as we can touch with the time we have on this planet, we desire to see the Word of God and the Kingdom of God advanced through us by His power. That's our desire. And for that to happen, you and I need to be men and women and children and youth and people who are willing to be authentic and to admit when we have it wrong. To the kids who are with us, I want to ask you a question. I don't know if you ever do anything wrong at home, if you ever disobey your parents, or if you ever, you know, kind of make a mistake. But if you have, if that's possible, I want you to think about that for just a second. What's your natural tendency when you've screwed up? How many of you kids, if you've messed up, would say that your first impulse is to go to mom and dad and say, I've screwed up. Please forgive me. I'm looking for hands here. From the time that we're children, we learn not to do that. We learn to be afraid. We learn instead to hide and to manage our sin rather than confess it. And we carry that all through. We carry that into adulthood. We carry that into our life in Christ. We carry that into our spiritual maturity. And there are still things in our lives that we are managing and hiding rather than confessing. These can be persistent and habitual sins. These can be attitudes and wrong ideas. These can be hardness of heart and unforgiveness. There's all kinds of things, but if you are in Christ and I am in Christ, you know they don't belong. You know it. But we harbor it anyway. We hold on to it anyway. And we grieve the Holy Spirit and we create a bottleneck for the Holy Spirit's power. Because God is not mocked, right? God is not mocked. I've told you before that as God began working in me, and as I began to seek and ask for more of the Holy Spirit and to be led by the Holy Spirit, I told you his first work started in me. He began to, first of all, work on me and show me things in my life that I needed to face up to, confess and admit and ask for forgiveness for and to change. That process is ongoing. This is real for me because not that long ago, not that long ago, God showed me something in my life that I had been managing rather than confessing or trying to manage and I hadn't been managing it very well. And I realized, and I was brought to the place where, where you know, I, and I've read in books that you don't manage sin. You try to manage sin, and it just keeps coming back, because your willpower will only last for so long. You could try to forgive someone, 
and have an issue come up and you'll be right back to where you were, all angry and upset and unforgiving again. Why? Because you're trying to forgive in your own power. You're trying to forgive in your own strength. You can have a bitterness and a critical spirit and you can be angry about what's going on at Forest Brook or in your life or whatever or however many things it is and you can say, well, I've got to get rid of this feeling. I've got to give it up. It's not. And you can set it aside, but something will happen. Something will be said. Somebody will say something. It'll come up and you'll be right back there again. Why? Because you're trying to deal with it in your own strength. You're not confessing it. You see what these guys did? You see what these believers did? When they saw this demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power, when they, when they came to faith, what did they do? It says they confessed their deeds. And those that had been involved, involved in sorcery brought all their scrolls and all their magic books and their horoscopes and all the other kind of stuff that they were in. They threw them on a pile and they burned them. There was, a, there was a, a zeal there to say, I have got to make this right. I have got to get this out of my life, and I need God's help to do it. That's what confession is. That's what confession is. And if we are going to be a church, if we are going to be a group of people, if I am going to be the kind of pastor and person that wants to see the Holy Spirit's power flowing through me and through us into the world to accomplish what we have placed on our hearts in terms of our burden for the expansion of the kingdom of God, then you and I must be a confessing people. A confessing people. A people who are honest about who we are and what's going on in our hearts and in our minds and what we're holding on to, what grudges, what gripes, what complaints, what unforgiveness and what garbage in our lives we're holding on to that prevent the Holy Spirit from doing what He wants to do. Because it is the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and the authentic response of believers that releases the power of the Word of God and causes expansive growth. So we need to think about that. I want us, I encourage us to go from this book of Ephesians, to go from this sense of who we are as the people of God and to go into our lives in Christ, not trying to do this in our own power, but by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit and having a humble heart and being authentic and open with God and with one another that we don't have it all together, that we don't have all the answers, that we're sinners as much as the next person. We're all beggars looking for bread. We just need different kinds of bread. If that could be our prayer, if that could be our commitment, we don't have to go seeking the power of the Holy Spirit. He will be released. He will be released. The community saw the response of these believers, their authentic confession, and the church exploded because it was real. And they knew it was real. 
May we be real. May we be real with one another. May we be real with the Holy Spirit. And then we will grow. Confession can be a scary thing. A.W. Tozer, sorry, I had a couple slides I wanted to, before I do this. I wanted to read this Tozer quote. Tozer says this, he says, It is possible to be religious and not forsake the world. It's possible to forsake the world in body, yet never forsake it in spirit. It's possible to forsake the world externally and still be worldly inside. Yet nobody can be a Christian in the right sense of the word until they have forsaken the world. Christianity begins in here. We can conform to the image of Jesus. We can conform to Christianity. We can control our lives. We can change our behaviors. We can change our traditions. We can do all kinds of things outwardly that make us look like we are Christ followers. But what makes us a Christ follower is what's going on in the heart. That's the real litmus test. What is in our hearts? And all the outward stuff, all of the stuff that we learn growing up in the church and all, of the, all the stuff we teach church, all that other stuff can just become a mask, a facade for a kind of hypocrisy that the Holy Spirit is grieved by. Authenticity, humility, genuineness. These are the things that excite the Holy Spirit and release His power in our life. What are you holding on to? What might you and I need to confess to allow the Holy Spirit's power to flow through us? That's what I'm asking us to think about. Is there something in my life that is frustrating the Holy Spirit? He's shown me some things. Things that I thought I was managing when in reality I was just being a fool. And so I'm on a journey of overcoming those things. And it begins with confession. What might you be holding on to? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you. If we pray and ask to be led by the Holy Spirit and receive the Holy Spirit, and we are genuine in that ask, He will show us. And then we'll have to do something about it. But that's okay, because that's how we grow. That's how we grow. And when we see those changes in one another, it should excite us and it should cause us to be motivated and say, this is real, this is genuine, this is the Holy Spirit, this is transformation. And it should encourage us to want more as well. As the Spirit moves us, let us be open and respond accordingly. As I said, confession can be scary, I love the passage that was read from Romans 8 last week in our service. And when this was read, this verse, I knew you know, kind of what I was going to be talking about today, and, and I had this on my mind. And when these verses were read, I just found such assurance in them. Just with my own struggle and, and stuff that I'm dealing with, you know, in my, in my own life, there was such assurance in these verses. Because... Confession does not equal condemnation. 
It's the other way around. Confession means freedom. There is no condemnation in confession. Listen to this in Romans chapter 8, in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now listen to this. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who can bring a charge against us? You see, this is what's so wrong when you and I accuse one another and when we bring charges against one another and we say things about one another and we, and we call out sin in one another's lives. We mock this passage because this passage says, who can do that? No one. No one can bring a charge against another before the Lord. Why? It is God who justifies God decides whose sins are forgiven and whose aren't. He's the judge. Who is he that condemns Christ Jesus who died? More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. If Christ is interceding for us, if Christ is our high priest, and if Christ has said, if we confess he is just and willing to forgive, how then can anyone hold our feet to the fire and condemn us. So confession is not condemnation. Confession is grace. It is the embracing and receiving of grace. It is the beginning point of healing and, and, and restoration and reconciliation and all those good things because it says, God, I am messed up. I have stuff in my life that does not belong to you and I can't get rid of it. Please help. And when that happens, there is forgiveness. There is grace. There is power. And there is no condemnation. How do we know that? Why believe me? Don't believe me. Believe this table. Believe this table. What did Paul say? Who can bring any charge? Who can condemn when Jesus did this? When God did this for you and for me, that's the greatest gift there is. That's the greatest demonstration of forgiveness that there is. That's the greatest demonstration of grace that there is. That God does not deal with us according to our sins. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And every week when we take of the communion, we are reminded that God has done his part. We simply need to receive it, walk into it, and believe him. And begin to live like we believe it. Because God's already done it. The forgiveness is already here. So as we take of communion today, and if God has reminded you of something or put something on your heart, or you're feeling guilty or weighted down about something, please hear this, that by the taking of this bread and of this cup, you are forgiven. Not by me, but by the Lord Jesus who gave his life. And by the Father and the Holy Spirit who are with him in this thanksgiving.
Those are not my words, they're his. That's what he says. If we confess our sins, he is just and willing to forgive us. So let's not be a proud people. Let's be a confessing people. Let's be a people who hold to the foot of the cross with one arm and reach out to every other sinner we encounter with the other and say, come, come. Here is where we find life. Here is where we find forgiveness. Here is where we find wholeness and freedom. Let's be that kind of church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. More good, uh, we, more good than, than we can believe, Lord, and, uh, and that just shows our weakness and our, our um, dependency. Thank you, Lord, so much that you are so much greater than our thoughts and our fears, that even when our own hearts condemn us, you don't, uh, Lord, because of who you are. You know that we're sinners. You know our frame. You know that we're dust. As a father has compassion on his children, so you have compassion on us. And we are so grateful. This doesn't mean that sin is something that we should treat lightly. Absolutely not. For sin took the life of our Lord Jesus. When he took our sins upon him, he went to the cross, a broken body, and shed his blood so that there could be forgiveness of sins. And so our forgiveness is in him and in his sacrifice. So thank you, Lord. We receive that. We confess our need for it. And we thank you for it. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and fill us both with gratitude and with a deep sense of confession. That we would be a purified people, a people that are willing, Lord, to do the hard work of getting our lives cleaned up so that your spirit can flow through us in wonderful and miraculous ways into the world so that others can see your love in us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Please bless this bread and bless this cup to the purpose of this communion as we remember Jesus and give thanks for him. And in his name we pray, amen. If the ushers would serve communion now, that would be great.